So I love, I love on Wednesday nights that our kids uh, are a part of the initial uh, worship gathering and it's the reminder that there are a considerable amount of children being born in our midst. Uh, it's pretty crazy. In our life family alone, uh, there were five babies born in two and a half months time period and um, we just had another one yesterday. And uh, so it's just, it's, it's as if there's just something in uh, the drinking fountain out there or something. There's just a lot of babies. And uh, I was af affirmed yesterday of what often happens with a newborn. Went to visit this family, just had a baby. And of course, you know, you always comment on how beautiful the child is. I've, I've never said uh, visiting a child that a child was ugly, right? So uh, you always say that they're beautiful. And in this case, the child was very beautiful, um, but you always are trying to figure out who they look like, right? And so, like, I mean, literally sometimes awkwardly, almost right out of the womb, parents begin that discussion, right? Like, oh, look, it has your nose, and that's either a compliment or not, right? Or, oh, look, it's your ears, you know? Or, oh, look, your hairline, you know, which for me would not be a compliment. But um, you're, you're already talking about, like, what the child looks like. And so yesterday, I'm holding this uh, newborn, and, uh, and I literally say, almost out of just like already being in that sort of rhythm, I, I, I say, so who's, whose nose does she have? You know, and I'm like looking at her nose and looking at his nose and trying to piece it all out, right? And uh, the newborn um, all of a sudden starts to look generally more and more like one of the parents. Uh, you guys know that in our kids, we have a one child that looks very, very much like me and Dawson, one child that looks very, very much like uh, her mother, that's Avery, and one child that's kind of a mixture of us both, uh, Maddox. He also got a mixture of her anger, which we talked about last week. That's another story. But what I've noticed is things progress. And so as the child gets older, uh, we stop kind of talking about uh, what they look like. And, and all of a sudden, we move to who they act like, right? And so Parents will use this against one another, you know, it's, well, they act like you, you know, I'm not sure what you're, what you're talking about, or, or we'll say it as a, as a phrase of endearment, right? Like, oh, they, look, they act just like you. So five, six, seven, and eight, we begin to talk more about how they act. And then as their later years begin to progress, and even at times um, at their funeral, what started out who they look like what progressed to who they act like, then all of a sudden we start talking about who they lived like. And some of you already can begin to see how your life has panned out and whose life that maybe even uh, you were born out of or were around a lot that you live a lot like. But the concept of likeness as we grow throughout the years is really, really intriguing when you begin to talk about our relationship with our collective father. And uh, the transition looks a little different. Uh, when we begin to come to Christ, I, I don't think we talk much about, you know, oh, oh, look, that's God's nose, right? Or, oh my goodness, you got God's biceps or... You know, like, like we don't talk with that kind of language, thankfully, right? But we, we do say things, articulate things, and wrestle with things. That part of your life really is, is like God. I just did a wedding this past uh, weekend here, and a dear friend's been here at Matthias a long time. And one of the things that I mentioned about both of the husband and the wife was the characteristic traits that they possessed that showed me characteristic traits of God. And so with all of that in mind, tonight we're going to dive deep into the imagery of imitation. And so I want you guys to open your Bibles into Ephesians chapter 5. We're, we're going to walk through a, a, a pretty incredible amount of text. We're not going to be able to camp out in every single one of these verses We'll pick and choose, uh, as the Lord leads tonight, where to hang. But verses 1 through uh, 14 tonight of Ephesians uh, chapter 5, the 
issue of imitation. Powerful text here. Let's begin in verse 1. Paul uses another therefore. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as, what's the word there? Come on. As beloved children. Um, Now, what I want to propose to you is that you're imitating something. Every single one of us in this room right now are imitating something. Uh, The question is, whom are we imitating? Now, I want to phrase it in what seems to be a very harsh statement, but I think to be a very true statement. Next slide. We are either imitating God as beloved children or we're imitating Satan as entitled children. Uh, Let me take one step further. Again, it feels harsh. I just want it to be tremendously out of love. These are the two camps here tonight. That's it. There's no other camp. At the core, you are either imitating God, which we'll talk about here in a second, or you're imitating Satan. And both sections are children. One is a grateful child, a beloved child, a cared-for child, The other is the kind of child which we see all around our culture, a very entitled one. They deserve everything. Everything should be given to them on a silver platter. And these are the children of Satan. And again, I know you're like, Mark, that's like, why would you say that there's children of Satan? Well, all I'm doing is quoting scripture. Next slide. Look at this in 1 John chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has not been born of God. Here's my context, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the who? Of the devil. See, I'm not making this stuff up. This is straight from 1 John 3. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So in other words, there is a child of God and there is a child of Satan. That's the only option. That's the only option in the room. Uh, The ones who are in a habitual practice, ongoing, never repenting, driven by the lusts of their heart into sin, the scripture says, show themselves to be a child of the devil. And again, if some of you are brand new here, uh, I, I just want to make sure you understand something. All we do here is teach God's word. And so you're like, man, that's a whole, lot of de- a whole lot of devil talk right away, okay? And I understand, but Satan is real. He's a real enemy. He's a real adversary for a period of time. There's going to be a day when he's conquered, but until then, until then, he has present power. And so you're either a child of God or a child of Satan. And the fruits of our life, how we imitate, show whose child we are which I know all of you would agree with, it's, it's eerie, right? Uh, at times, how imitative we can be of those around us. Uh, I know that many of you are like, I'm, I'm not like my dad at all. I'm not like my mom at all. And your spouse or friends or family members are like, dude, your dad said that exact same thing like 15 years ago. Or you, you have like the exact voice of your mom. I even, I've even seen discipling relationships here that spend a ton of time together, and they end up sounding like each other, right? So the art of imitation is very, very clear. Now the question for you and I is who are you imitating? Well, back to the text, I think the unbelievable nature of who we are in Christ is that we get the opportunity to imitate God as something. Not kids who a tyrant is whipping, Not uh, children who sit underneath a tyrannical reign, but we literally get to submit to God, imitate God, empowered by the Holy Spirit inside of us as beloved kids, as kids who are cared for and nourished and nurtured and who are growing because of the Father. But I think the big um, challenge for you and I is generally imitation is a negative thing in our context. There is a massive drive in our particular culture for authenticity, for, come on, individuality. Think of all of the kind of language that is used. It's all around you becoming who you are supposed to be and your world existing for your happiness and your pursuits. 
And so we even at times, right, chastise people who are too much living like some sort of response to a mime, right? And so I think what happens is then that carries over into our thoughts about imitating God. Then all of a sudden, our relationship with God becomes this, well, like, I, I don't know that I want to imitate God. I, I, I guess I want to be who God has individually, not just made me to be, but, but who sinfully I can be. In other words, we haven't seen imitating God as this massive gift. We've seen it as something that is infringing on our individuality, which is a very, very slippery slope. I think there's a powerful, next slide, I think there's a powerful question to ask. If you were going to imitate something, what would be your plan? So Saturday Night Live shows us um, a particular plan. I know some of you guys are fans of Saturday Night Live, right? How many of you guys like Saturday Night Live, right? It's a very timeless show. Now, every time there's a new president, um, there's a new actor of said president, okay? And who's the actor for Trump right now? Who's Alec Baldwin, okay? So as Alec Baldwin is learning how to imitate Trump, like he would be a poor imitator if he never, ever, ever watched Trump, correct? Like, like if he just made up his own character, made up his own hairdo, made up his own mannerisms, and he just put the label on himself, I'm Donald Trump. Like, that wouldn't work. But what Alec Baldwin has done is he's done his research, right? He, he choreographs his motions just like Donald. He speaks just like Donald. He does his hair as close as he can to Donald, right? Like, there's a level of investment to imitate. So let's say it this way. You cannot imitate if you do not invest into intimacy with whom you are imitating. You cannot imitate God if there is distance in the intimacy between the two of you. Again, you can wear the appropriate tag. You can say all you want. I am an imitator of God. But ultimately, it will be your life that says the answer. And so we could ask, if you were going to imitate God, what would be your plan? Like, what would be the strategy? I said another way, if you were to build a strategy right now, are you carrying it out? Are you pursuing the Lord in intimacy? In all the various ways that he has provided us opportunities, are you seeking after knowing whom it is that you are imitating? This is a highly quoted passage. Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children. But I want to contend to you tonight, I believe that for the majority of us, we have pushed off imitating God as something that we would not pursue because of our sinful uh, pursuit of individuality. So now in verse 2, he shows us what it would look like to begin to imitate God. And he starts only in one spot, the only spot that he could start. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you if I am going to imitate God, then everything will foundationally be love. God is love by definition. So then everything that is coming out of our life will be birthed, exemplified, and shown in love. And don't you see here, my friends, that what Paul does is he says, as Christ. He's not like pulling doctrine out of the sky. He literally is emulating exactly what he's teaching. If we're going to imitate God, then love as Christ has loved. And then interestingly enough, in this passage, he says, loved us as he gave himself up for us. Um, now, I was doing a lot of study on this particular text, the giving up of himself and the connection with love. And there is this uh, old... Um, late missionary from India who I think best said what this kind of giving up love is. Uh, here's what Amy Carmichael said. One can give without loving, 
but what one cannot love without giving. Uh, Love is a word that we use a lot here. And I just want to make sure all of us are on the same page. It's why Jesus told the disciples, no greater love has someone than as he lays his life down for his friends. This is love. It's the giving up. And so if we want to embrace the character of God, if we desire to imitate who God is, then everything that is being exuded through the Holy Spirit out of our life will be a sacrificial giving up love. I cannot love if I do not give up. And so in your marital relationships, that philosophy applies. In your friendships, that philosophy applies. As we love the non-believer in this room, in our neighborhoods, in our co-workers, like it must be embraced and exemplified from self-sacrifice. But the last thing I want you to see in verse 2 is the word walk. Uh, So I have told you guys over and over and over in Ephesians, this word walk is an obsession, it seems, of Paul. He says it six times in the letter, six, six. Uh, This is the most outside of any of the gospels that we see the word. Now, what has happened in my study of this passage is I tonight can contend to you very firmly why he keeps using this imagery. Okay, we'll save that here for a few verses, but let's move on to verse three. Now the opposite side. If you're gonna imitate Satan, then there's some characteristic traits that go along with that. So he says it in the adverse. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Saints being all believers here, not some sort of hierarchical status in the church. Let's walk through these piece by piece. Sexual immorality is sex outside of one man, one woman in marriage. The Greek word is uh, uh, porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. So anything outside of one man, one woman in marriage, that is sexual morality. Uh, so that includes sex before marriage of any kind. That includes uh, indulgences and pornography and on and on and on. The list goes. Anything outside of that. And all impurity, anything that is built on filth or covetousness, which is essentially greed, This constant desire to want more and more and more. I'm not satisfied. What he says is this must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Then verse 4, look at this. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, and I love this phrase, which are out of place as a child of God, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, let me say it this way. When you are imitating God, there are certain things that begin to become very, very clear that they're out of place. Uh, favorite restaurants, really quick. What's your favorite restaurant? What's your favorite restaurant of all time? Uh, Chinatown Express. Chinatown Express, okay. Um, amen, amen. Uh, great Chinese food is awesome, isn't it? Yes. Jim, what's your favorite uh, restaurant of all time? Sue Waller's. Okay, I don't know that restaurant. Is it a local chain? Okay, good. All right, right on. Bro, uh, what's, your, what's your favorite restaurant of all time? It's as if we scripted this moment. It's as if we scripted this moment. Speaking of Texas Roadhouse, okay? Now, Texas Roadhouse is one of my favorite restaurants, all right? Yes, for many, many reasons. Uh, the rolls are succulent, the butter comes from the Lord, and the steaks, the steaks are insane, right? Wouldn't you agree? Now, if you're a frequenter of Texas Roadhouse, like me and my brother, all right, we go in there all the time. There was a season of my life, I'm not proud of it, that they knew my name. Anyway, um, it would be really, really strange. It still says Texas Roadhouse, but all of a sudden you walked in and the soundtrack was Celine Dion. You guys see what I'm saying? Like you're used to like the, what's the song that they do, the thing? You know, you're like you're used to country songs. They play country there, Right? which is against all of my personal beliefs, but I make exceptions. But if you walked in and all of a sudden the Texas Roadhouse soundtrack was Celine Dion, it would feel insanely strange, wouldn't it? If all of a sudden you walked around Texas Roadhouse and the waitresses or the waiters brought around fine chocolate for dessert with roses, 
you would be like this. Like this doesn't feel like Texas Roadhouse, you know? Like Texas Roadhouse is throwing your peanuts on the ground, is, is eating the rolls, is enjoying the butter from the Lord. Like that's what Roadhouse is. There are things that are out of place and you would feel that and you would sense that and you would see that and you would know that. So what happens when you become numb to seeing the things that are out of place? You guys understand? This has been allowed in the church. Filthiness, coarse joking, sexual immorality, and on and on and on. Because it's kind of not out of place. Can I ask you guys a question? Do you long, do you long with me? for these things through the Holy Spirit that resides in believers to bear such a conviction and a friction of light and darkness that instantly as that fellow believer of ours begins to take the conversation to filth, there is a, you know what? That's out of place. And in love and in encouragement, we rebuke gently so that our brother or sister might repent. But we stop allowing the things to be out of place just because we're uncomfortable calling it or them what it is. Uh, this, this right here, the thing that we're talking about, the way we're degrading women in this conversation, how we're joking about this situation, the pursuit of sexual morality, this is out of place. We're imitators of God, not of Satan. We're beloved kids. We're, we're not entitled brats who beat our fists on the stroller when we don't get our way or on the high chair where we're not fed the appropriate food. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Is it possible that things have become so commonplace in the church at large that we have uh, almost incessantly lost our ability to see light and darkness and things that are in place and out of place because they have just been allowed? I say my friends, that it is time to recognize the out of place again. And what does he say replace it with? Come on. What does he say replace it with? What? Thanksgiving. It's the opposite of entitlement. Entitlement says you should be thanking me that you gave that to me. That's what entitlement says. I deserve that car, so you should be telling me thank you for receiving it as a gift. But humility and brokenness and being a beloved child isn't filled with ingratitude. They show themselves as children of God by their constant heart of thanksgiving. I would say we have done a good job at times of learning our pleases and thank yous. We know as Christians when to say thank you at the right time. We know at the dinner table we're supposed to say thanks for the food. But I want to ask you, is that coming from a heart of thanksgiving or from rote mechanicalism that has been taught to say thank you, like a four, five, or six-year-old learns from their parents. It's a big difference. These things are out of place. And then a warning. A warning. Four, verse five says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has, what's the word there? No inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Um, okay, uh, you guys have been to a hotel pool before, right? Hotel pool? Has anyone ever in the history of mankind ever read the warning label at the hotel pool? Has anyone ever done that? Yeah. Okay. You have? Yeah. Okay. That's a poor example. Um, <laughs> I was hoping for a lot of no's, all right? We'll, we'll take it from a parent who, like, runs in with children. Okay, we'll work on that answer for later, all right? Um, take it from a parent who, who runs into hotel pools with children, who has no time to look at the warning label, right, because all you're doing is making sure the kids' floaties are on and that everyone's good because you know there's no lifeguard. You don't have to read the label to know that. I have never sat and taken the time. Kids, let's huddle around, right? Oh, and what are the hours of the pool? Okay, look, the hours are 
you know, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. We're right within the hours. This is great, right? And you just go piece by piece. There should be no eating or drinking in the pool. Yeah, right. You know, you like walk in with 85 Capri Suns. Oh, and oh, and look, there, there shall be no throwing of balls. You know, you're like looking in your bag and all they are are nerf, right? Like, like I, I've never taken the time to read it. In part, in part because I knew I was going to break them. But the other half of me, honestly, quite honestly, just really didn't care what it said. There's a lot of warnings in the scripture that have become like that. Oh, that's nice. I'm sure that will apply to some folks, but I'm really, really glad it doesn't apply to me. Uh, there's the thought in universalism in our culture that would say that everyone is going to heaven to spend an eternity with God. I I've shared it before. Have you ever been to a funeral where the, where the people didn't go to heaven? Have you ever been to that funeral? Everybody is always going to the better place. Well, so what is that a symptom of? It's a symptom that nobody is reading or believing the warnings. That time must end right now. Let me say it plainly. If you are a son or daughter of the flesh, which is embodied in showing and imitating the things of Satan, then the wrath of God is coming. It's coming. It's real. Mark, why, why are you preaching hellfire and brimstone? Again, please, please hear. Our heart here is to see every single one of you come to Christ. That every single person in this room would lay their life down at the foot of the cross because God offers grace. But we must take heed to the warnings. Maybe you've been wearing the label, beloved child. But your life says an entirely different story. Tremendous unrepentant sin. No intimacy with God. Continuing like a dog returns to its vomit. Just to eat and eat and eat from the lust of your heart. I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to make sure we read the warnings. And the warnings are clear. One more time. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ of God. So you're like, uh, I problema, we're all in big trouble, right? Is there anyone in here who has never lusted? Anyone here who has never covetoused, right? Like, the answer to that is no. Every single one of us stand here, in that sense, impure. The scripture in this case isn't talking about that. It's talking about those who have not been covered by the blood of Christ. Washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And that is the beauty of the gospel, that we present no righteous acts and instead we present all of our sexual immorality and all of our covetousness and all of our filthy talk. And we lay that down at the foot of Christ and he says, you know what, guess what? It is finished, I paid the debt for all that. You are washed clean and now a beloved child of God. And that offer is to everyone here, everyone here. If you do not heed that warning, if you do not receive the love and grace of the one true king, then I just want to make sure you understand what Paul is saying. We can't pick and choose the passages we believe. Wrath of God is real, and the wrath of God will be put on those who are not covered by the blood of Christ. The good news is the blood of Christ is offered to all right now, right now. And so he says to be clear in verse 7 then, do not become partners with them. Now, let's have some fun with this text. At least I think it's fun. Um, I have this conversation over and over and over and over. And generally, anytime you're talking to a guy and a gal who are dating, and one is a believer and one's not, we always point to the same passage. Okay, when Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked. But I want to contend to you, this is a stronger argument. What is he talking about? He's talking about those who aren't imitating God, who are sons of Satan, and those who imitate that imagery. And what he says is, look, 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 why would you partner with them? He's not saying don't be in relationship with them. He's not saying don't care for them or love them. That is our calling in Christ, to be ambassadors to the lost and dying world. What he is saying is, 
the moment you start to get super intimate, things all of a sudden can take a drastic turn. And that's where many of you find yourselves. It's always hard for me to encourage the couple that comes up. Hey, Mark, uh, we're so glad to be here. Um, she doesn't believe in Jesus. Uh, I kind of do. And uh, what do you think? Should we continue on dating? Well, if you're not imitating God, then who are you imitating? And if you're not a child of God, then you're a child of wrath, Scripture says. And so now do you see the problem? To say unequally yoked almost is, a, is selling it a little bit short. We're literally becoming partners with those who have no um, simultaneous conviction through the Holy Spirit with us and thinking that that's going to turn out great. Paul makes clear, do not become partners with them, church in Ephesus, driven by sexual immorality, driven by idolatry. And verse 8 is insane. You guys ready for this? Oh, my goodness. For at one time, please see this, somebody. For at one time, you were darkness. Do we use that kind of language? It's not that you were in darkness. I've done as much research as I can here to, to put all of the Greek sentence structure together. And this is exactly what he's saying. You were darkness. Not just in darkness or filled with darkness. Literally, by definition, darkness. But, another amazing but in the scripture. But now you are Light in the Lord. You are light. And you're in that light because you're in the Lord. And so he says to walk as children of light. Okay. So uh, what does it mean to walk as a child of light? Isn't that a great question? Right? Can, so, can you say yes because you said it earlier? Okay, thank you. Right? So I want to show you straight from the word of God, what it means then to be a child who is walking in the light. Straight from the scripture, let's start with Jesus. Next slide. John chapter one, verse four and five. Here's what John writes. In him, in Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness, please see this, has not overcome it. So to walk as children of light begins with the principle that you are light because he is light and you're walking in victory because darkness is not going to overcome Christ and Christ is light and Christ is in you and you are light because you're in Christ and so the walk as children of light is a walk of victory. A text uh, me and uh, some brothers have been talking about recently is no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Paul writes in Corinthians, we are victorious in Christ. So to walk as a child of the light is to, my friends, walk in victory, even when it doesn't feel like it. In the, in the face of tremendous pain and trial and tribulation and all of the chaos of this world and the cancer that comes into our family and the sickness that grabs us over here and the disobedient child that makes us frustrated and the loss of job and on and on and on. You name the burdens in this room. In fact, I'll say it this way, the burdens are unending in this room. And yet the answer for all of the burdens in this room is the same. There is one answer. We have victory in Christ in spite of cancer, in spite of loss of job, in spite of feeling lonely, in spite of this sin issue, because the darkness does not win. It hasn't overcome it. He is the light and the light of men, and he has not been overcome. He wins. And so, as children of light, we walk not in pride or arrogance, but in humility, in tremendous victory. But there's something else. Back to our friend Moses. Check this out. Good old Moses, right? 
Moses spends some time with God on Mount Sinai, and then something happens to him. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, I, I know it's so hard in some places of Scripture to not see these as like funny fables and fairy tales. But could you imagine this scene? I mean, he's, he's just spent some incredible intimate time with God. He comes down with the tablets and people are like backing away because his face is shining because he has spent time with God. And the awesome thing is he doesn't know it because it's just, because, it's just where he is. It's just who he is. It's just what he's experienced. And so he comes down, he's like, man, do I smell bad? Like, what's going on? Like, why is everyone turning away from me? And, and everyone is looking on in awe because his face is shining. Children of light walk in victory. And children of light, my friends, exude the radiance of Christ. Wherever they go, Exude the radiance of Christ. Whatever restaurant they're in, household they're at, dinner function they go to, it doesn't matter. The, the beloved child of God walks in because they have met with God and they have God inside of them through the Holy Spirit. And people around are saying, What is with that person? They are radiating something. And the crazy thing is, I know what they're going through. I, I know their, their life is seemingly falling apart back here. Like, why are they still radiating something? They should be down in the dumps, they, they should be off in the corner by themselves. And yet, there's still this joy. There, there's still this hope. There, it's still this reality that darkness does not win. That's is walking as a child of light in victory and the radiance of Christ going out from us in every single scenario. And that, my friends, is a powerful thing. But this is the fifth of six mentions of the word walk. And all of a sudden, I came to this realization of why I believe Paul is so obsessed with it. A couple weeks ago, do you guys remember when it was like 185? Do you guys remember that here in St. Louis? Yes. Moving into a beautiful weekend, so that'll be cool. I'm sure everyone will be talking about the weather. Oh my goodness, it's 79. Um, it was literally, it was whatever, 108 out with a heat index of, you know, the surface of the sun. And um, Heidi and the kids had gone somewhere. I was getting ready for the MV and just compelled to go on a walk. And I was like, Lord, it's uh, decently warm outside. Are you sure that this is wise and befitting? And uh, I sensed that the answer was yes. And so I went down on Main Street on the, on the Katy Trail. You guys know the Katy Trail? Well, you guys know I've been repenting of a lot of health things. And so walking and running have become more normal for me. I must say that I haven't frequented the Katy Trail very much. Okay, so this was kind of a new experience for me. You know, I'm like, dude, I was like, I'm on the Katy Trail, man. You know, I've heard so many people talk about riding bikes on the Katy Trail. And so I start walking, Okay. I park away down by the kind of the, the inlet of the river and start walking towards Main Street. And uh, it's hot and I'm very, very sweaty. And I literally, it's like a ghost town. No one else is walking because everyone else got the memo, okay? Um, but I noticed that as I was walking, there was this cadence, uh, there was this rhythm. I didn't think about it until like a mile in. But I knew that I was going to be walking down the path. And so there, there was just this pattern that I got into. Now, I was in marching band in high school. Anyone else, right? And so uh, I love cadences. And I know what it was to like march in time. But, but this is a different kind of cadence. Uh, it was like I was, I was headed somewhere. I knew where I was going. And all of a sudden, there was just this, this rhythm to the walk. When you walk in darkness, there is no cadence. 
You're going you're gonna, to, I believe, resonate with this. And so please work with me. When you're walking in darkness, you're driven by insecurity. Insecurity doesn't have a cadence. Insecurity is hesitant at times. Uh, at other times, the pace is too quick because you're trying to overexert and overassert yourself. Uh, there's times where the pursuits of your lust cause you to run after something and increasing the cadence and the pattern. And then other times, you shrink back in fear. There is no cadence when you're walking in darkness because it is literally all over the map. There's no rhythm. There is no pattern. It's fear. It's hesitant. It's run. It's slow. There is no case for a pattern cadence in darkness. But when you're walking in the light, you know exactly where it is that you're going. That's why Paul said, keep your eyes on the prize. And so your eyes on the prize, there begins to be this rhythm. Uh, things can potentially distract, but the rhythm and the cadence maintains the same because the eyes are still fixated on the prize. Now, in a culture, certainly, that where walking was very, um, very present in this day of Ephesus, I believe every single person would have resonated with their different kinds of ways to walk. One that has victory and a cadence and a pattern and a direction and another that is blown to and fro by fear, lack of faith, hurt, and pain. So let me ask you this. What would you say your cadence is right now? Or would you communicate your walk with Christ right now as a race of pace? Or would you say right now that your rhythm, your pace is way off and inconsistent? Next slide. Does your walk display right now the radiance of Christ? That person has met with God. Just look at them. They have encountered God face to face. Is that your walk? Does it communicate a radiance of Christ? Verse 9 adds some awesome truth to this. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That's the cadence. That's the walk. And try then to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Let's say it this way. You cannot discern the will of God and walk in darkness. It's not compatible at all. People come to me all the time, uh, Mark, I'm really, really distant from God, and I'm just trying to discern uh, this thing or that thing. I'm like, well, I don't understand what you're saying. You will not be able to discern the will of God through the word of God working with the Holy Spirit in you as you walk in darkness. Those things are incompatible. God can speak whenever God wants, but my friends, he's given us a framework of discernment. Try to discern then in light what is pleasing to the Lord. Look at verse 11 and 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, whoa, whoa, whoa. but instead expose them. Now, a big question here is who is he speaking to? Let me ask a really, really hard question for you and for me. What would happen if all of our deeds in the darkness were fully exposed? What would happen? We, we talk about it here sometimes, like tapping in the, you know, the piece to our mind. What would happen if one by one we just all came up here and all of the deeds that you've done in isolation and in the darkness and all the thoughts you had in darkness, we just like, they were all like right here. It would be a really interesting scene, wouldn't it? Okay? This would be like the best reality t you know, television anywhere, right? And it would be horrific. And so the question is, do you want those things to be exposed? Uh, are you ready and willing to confess those things, the scripture says, so that you might be healed? Uh, well, here's the awesome piece, and we say it here all the time. You already are fully exposed, and in Christ, fully loved. 
And so there is no then a scapegoat. He says, expose these deceitful works of darkness, these unfruitful things that are happening. For it is shameful, look at this, to even speak of the things that they do in secret. I'm just asking, can we get to that heart? Where it's shameful to even speak the works of darkness out of our mouths because of how heinous they are. Just like on the opposite side, the ancient Jews would at times dare speak the word Yahweh for God because of how much power it had. And finally, verse 13 and 14, and feel free to dance. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Listen to this. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So in other words, what he does at the end of this, man, there were some warnings here, some heavy passages, some deep evaluation. I'm sure you're wrestling, am I a child of God or a child of Satan? But then he says, no matter if you feel lifeless, hopeless, completely dead in your sin, ready for the wrath of God, the hope is in the grace of Christ, Rise from the dead. Awake, O sleeper. And what does he say? Christ will shine on you, and you can leave these moments then radiating the light of Christ as a child of the light. I'd like to show you guys something, if you don't mind. Next slide. There is this... um, This crazy, crazy story in the scripture. And it's always been on my, um, it's always been on my back burner. But all of a sudden, as I was studying this passage and going over and over and over and how I could best uh, care for you and communicate God's truth, this story just became buoyant again. Next slide. That very day, two two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, what's happened is Jesus has died, and these two are walking from Jerusalem, we can only imagine, in this sort of hopeless state, and they're communicating just like you and I would about the current events. And the current event that they're speaking of is Christ has died. Next slide. Next slide here if you can, brother. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So he has risen. And all of a sudden, Jesus just shows up in this conversation, walking with these two on the way to Emmaus. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're literally walking with Christ and they don't know who it is. Now, some people would argue, like, like why is Jesus playing like Jedi mind tricks on these guys? Like, like, what's going on here? But he has an intention. Next slide. Look at this. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They're on a seven-mile walk. A seven-mile walk filled with pain and doubt and hurt. They even communicate that doubt. And Jesus says, well, why are you guys walking? Like, why the seven-mile walk? What's, what's happening here? And what Scripture says, next slide, is that they stood still, sad. So imagine the moment, hopeless, walking somewhere, but almost walking aimlessly. They've just lost the thing that they go on to communicate. Uh, Well, we thought that he was the Messiah, but then uh, people went to the tomb and he wasn't there. That's what they tell Jesus. He wasn't there. He's gone. 
We thought he was the Messiah, they say. Well, then what happens in the story is they sit down for a meal together after their walk. And then here's what the text says happens. Next slide. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, the same hour where Jesus opens their eyes and shows himself to them. They realize this is the Christ, the very one that we were doubting that he was alive. Now we see him with our own eyes. Look at this. They found the 11. They like chase after the disciples. And those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed. These guys were just sad. We're just hopeless. We're just defeated. And then God opens their eyes. And now what? Radiating Christ. Walking as children of light. All centered on what? The resurrection. The hope that Christ had risen. That's why Paul says, rise up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. He is risen. And so now all of us in Christ can walk as children of the light because darkness didn't win. Darkness won't win. Darkness will never win. And guess what, my friends? Because he is risen from the dead now, everyone in him to the lost and dying world can radiate his love everywhere. And so they run and tell the boys he's alive. And we run and we share with the world that he's alive. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore, we say. I know what that feels like. I, I know what that was like. Listen, it's worthless way to walk. You can now walk in victory, in hope, in a cadence that is filled with grace. Let's stand together. Come on. So to the children of light in the room, victory is yours. We don't have to be sad, my friends, anymore. Victory is ours. So celebrate with thanksgiving children of light and for anyone who walked in here tonight a child of the darkness guess what literally right now in this precise second the scripture says you can call on the name of the Lord and three four seconds ago you were a child of wrath but now in Christ a beloved child of God. So call on his name. Shout out for his grace and his mercy. And believe this. In Christ, the darkness has been overcome. Let's walk and radiate Christ together.